Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 11. To John chapter 11. Excuse me. 12. I've been saying 11 so long, I'm stuck on it. John chapter 12. If I ever get out of this straitjacket, we may be here all day. Anyway, John chapter 12, and your your order of worship says verses 1 through 19, but we're really just going to go through 1 through 11 today. I had great ambitions early on in the week to cover a large section, but uh, I think we'll just do 1 through 11, just the episode as Mary anoints Jesus. It's an interesting passage. As we said last week, we're coming to the very pivotal point of John's gospel. Up until this point, there's been a public ministry whereby he has spoken to the masses and spoken to the crowds and called people to faith and shown himself by his miracles, his signs, and by extended discourses, extended periods of teaching. This chapter, chapter 12, contains no miracle, no sign. It contains no sustained or extended discourse. It's really made up of three sections. The first section reports uh, events that, that, or both the first two sections uh, report events that honor Christ, that point to him clearly as who he is based on everything that's been done because John says, therefore, everything has gone before. This is what happens in these two events in 1 through 11 and 12 through 19 just are, are given to honor Jesus, even though many don't grasp even in his presence, the significance of what is happening. And certainly many in our day don't grasp the significance of what takes place. In the third section, it's kind of interesting, verses 20 through, 20 through 36, you, you find Greeks coming to Jesus, inquiring of him. Up until now, it's been all Jews, pretty much. A few Greeks are, are Gentiles every now and then. But in this last section, you have Greeks coming to him and inquiring about what's going on. And, and really, I believe that is beginning to indicate that the hour is close. Remember back in, in John chapter 2, at the very first miracle, the wedding feast at Cana, Mary came, Mary, the mother of Jesus, not this Mary, but Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to Jesus and said, the wine has run out, we, we have a problem, and I've told them to do whatever you say to do. And, and Jesus looked at Mary and said, Mary... Mother, don't you understand? My hour is not yet here. Indicating it was not time for his, the full revelation of his Messiahship, the full revelation of his deity to be made. But now it looks as though with the Greeks coming that there's about to be an explosion of, of evidence, an explosion of, of the cross to begin to take place. And the Greeks come, thus showing the fulfillment of that hour that he was speaking of back in in chapter 2, and he spoke of on several other occasions. This chapter that we come to in chapter 12 really is finishing the most, one of the most important divisions of Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry, his earthly ministry to all men. And from this point on, John records that our Lord's public addresses to unbelieving Jews and unbelieving people comes completely to an end. And from this point on, Jesus will only say things in private to his disciples. Now that's significant because he is preparing them 
for six days from now when he's going to be crucified and taken to the cross to bear the sins of the world, to bear the sins of all who believe. And, and so we see here Jesus now beginning to bring public ministry to a close, and everything from here on out is a very private ministry only to his disciples. Everything we've set up until now has been clearly marked by Jesus and by John to say to those who are not believers, those who have never trusted Jesus, see him, look at him, understand what he's doing. He's done all these signs in order to show you that he really is the one from God. Listen to what he has to say. And now he draws near to his disciples, draws near to those around him, and he says, I want to prepare you for my death that is coming, and I want to prepare you for your mission and your ministry going forth. He's not shutting out the unbelievers. He's not saying at this point the unbelievers have lost all hope or all chance of believing. There will be chance for believing. He's just not addressing them until after Calvary, until after the resurrection. He's now preparing his disciples, and he's preparing you and me to speak his truth and to speak his gospel to those who who do not believe. But his ministry to them is, is virtually on this earth over at this point in John's gospel. So hear what John says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was. Lazarus was, who's just been raised from the dead. Jesus had been off in the quiet place, off in, in hiding in Ephraim, and now he's coming back to Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem. Where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there. And Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary then took a pound of a very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who John adds, by the way, is intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this, I love John. You know, John is not seeing this when he's there with Jesus in Bethany. He's not seeing that Judas is going to betray him. He's not seeing somehow uh, with, with some kind of prophecy that, that Judas really is a thief. But, but John, looking back on this, writing this, is saying, we didn't know this when we were there with him, perhaps, but in very short order, we learned this truth, and so he just sort of works it in now. Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that Jesus was there And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they may also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. 
I mean, everybody was talking about Lazarus. Here was this man four days in a grave that Jesus spoke to as they rolled away the stone, and he came out. I mean, you know, he was quite a sight to see. So they came not only to see Jesus, but also they wanted to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also. They already said, we got to get rid of Jesus. And now John tells us that Lazarus' life was in peril also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Now, just as an aside here, because I had, I had uh, Scott read the passage from, uh, from Mark's gospel. And Mark, and Mark and Matthew both say, in this instance, that when he came back to Bethany, he went to the house of Simon the leper. John says nothing about the house of Simon the leper. He just says he came back to Bethany six days before the Passover, uh, where Lazarus was, and Martha was serving. Now, if you just read that, some might say, well, now there's a contradiction in Scripture. John, Matthew and Mark say it's, it's uh, uh, Simon the leper's house. Here, it's obviously Martha's house, but not necessarily. It said Martha was serving, but it also indicates that Lazarus was a guest in this house, uh, and, and although he doesn't mention whose house specifically it is. Most scholars believe that, that Simon the leper was there nearby, probably a neighbor, probably a friend. And, and Martha was the one who was doing the serving. It could have been at, his, at, at Simon's house. And she was merely taking care of serving. Martha was always about serving, wasn't she? Every time you see Martha, that's what she's doing. She's doing something practical. She's doing something as far as serving. So there's no real contradiction here. There, there's just a little leeway given between the way the gospel writers account it. You'll see another little, just a little sort of aside that John gives in a minute. That is not necessary to the story, but it, it indicates probably the evidence of one who was there. And he just sort of threw it in to, to see that. So I want you to see here what this, this section is really all about. If I were to ask you this morning, and you don't have to answer, but I want you to think about it. If I were to ask you, what is the essence of this encounter? Jesus coming back to Bethany after having his life threatened by the high priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and and the Sanhedrin, and he goes off to hide. Now he comes back, and he goes in to have this meal, to have this dinner, uh, in his honor, to be honored, uh, in, in either Simon's house, where Martha's serving, or, or, or whatever. And he comes into that place, and Mary comes out with this vial of very expensive perfume, a pure nard. Uh, and, and she proceeds to break it. Now, both Mark and, and Matthew say that she broke it and she anointed his head and let it flow down. John takes it on to another level. She sa he says he all she's also anointed his feet. And I think there's significance in that. I don't think there's, a, again, a contradiction necessarily. A pound of, of, of nard, 300 denarii's worth of nard, would, would be a, sufficient to do head and feet both without any question. And as it poured down and it went to the feet, she could have anointed it for a very specific reason. Don't think there's anything to worry about there. But it's something we need to see. We need to see that when Mary comes in with this, this vial, this, this holder of this pure, fragrant perfume, very costly, that, that Judas is going to say, why didn't you take it and sell it for 300 denarii and, and take care of some poor people? Really what he wanted to say, though, why don't you take 300 denarii and put it in the box? 
that I'm holding and that John tells us later he's pilfering from. So you get a little bit of the, the dynamic that's taking place here. We look at 300 denarii and we, what does that mean? Some of us might think, well, maybe it means $300. What's the big deal about $300? There's no big deal about that. But a denarii, one denarii, was roughly the equivalent of a day's wages. Some of his parables, he talks about that. The master comes and sends his workers into the field and says, I'll pay you a denarii for your work for this day. And, and that typically is, a, is one day's wage. So if you've got 300 denarii taking out Sabbaths when they didn't work and holy days when they didn't work, that pretty much comes to about one year. So what, what Judas is saying here is that this material that Mary is using to, to just extravagantly, in Judas's view, wastefully pour upon Jesus is enough for somebody to live, probably a family to live, for a whole year. And you're just pouring it out. But you'll see a couple of things about this encounter in this passage. But I want you to see it in light of this. The whole thing is about worship. The, the whole account is about worship. Mary coming to the feet of Jesus is about worship. Mary coming and anointing him is about extravagant worship. It is extravagant. But it's not unrighteous. It's not wrong. It's pure worship as she comes to him. But, but one of the things I want you to see, first of all, I want you to see in this encounter the absolute abounding proof that exists for the truth of our Lord's claims. Everybody's talking about the miracles. And, and, and a living miracle is right there before him. The, the ultimate proof, the ultimate sign, as it built from the wedding at Cana, changing the water into wine, coming right up into the time of raising Lazarus from the dead, everything pointing to his deity, but that one mark, that one sign, that final sign in his earthly ministry of bringing Lazarus forth was the ultimate of saying, this is the Son of God. This man is from God. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He is deity incarnate. He carries with him all the attributes of God. He carries with him all the powers of the living God. Only God can give life. The scripture has been clear of that from the very beginning. When in, in, in Genesis, he breathed life into man. Life is a gift and a power of God and God alone. And so they see Lazarus walking around. He came back to where Lazarus was. The Jews have seen him. Those who want to kill Jesus have seen him. Uh, all the people have, have seen him. I mean, people even came running when they were Jesus. They said, well, he's there. Lazarus must be there. Let's go see them both. And probably Lazarus has been talking a lot. Do you think you would? You die? You go into the grave? Jesus raises you from the grave, gives you life? And they take the grave clothes off, and now you're back in the, in the same condition you were prior to your death, your sickness. And you're walking around. You think you might tell somebody what happened? Oh, I think so. And that's what's happening. And because of what his, his talking, just simply telling people, you know, I was dead. <laughs> and now I'm alive because Jesus called me forth from the grave. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, all, all the all the chief priests are really bugged by it because they want to put him back to death because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. He was a one-man crusade. 
walking around telling the people what has taken place in his life. There's great evidence there. But you know, the chief priests and the Pharisees and the, a lot of the Jews there, they're just not going to be convinced by such evidence. But to not be convinced by this kind of evidence, it may well be that they are just determined not to believe. Have you ever known anybody like that? I'm not going to believe. I don't want to believe. Uh, you know, I don't care what you show me. I don't care how many miracles Jesus did. I don't care how much you tell me Jesus done in your life. I, I'm just not going to believe. I refuse to believe. You've seen people like that. They're dead set. You know why they're dead set? They're dead set on that, as we talked about a little bit last week, because they want to be their own Lord. They want to have control of their own life. They want nobody, God, Jesus, or anybody else, telling them how they ought to live. And so they refuse by just being determined to believe nothing at all. So we see the evidence. It's clearly here. Second thing we see, as Mary comes in and anoints him, anoints the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, which was a very unusual and unexpected thing, I guarantee you, in that room. And then John just sort of as an aside, as one who was there, and it, he just remembers it so vividly, he says, and you know, the fragrance of the perfume filled the house. I was sitting over in a corner. Mary was doing it over here, and, and it just filled the place. There was just a, there was an aroma that just filled the house remarkably. As Jesus' feet were anointed. But there were some. Matthew and Mark tell us there were some. I don't know if they're a little more kind or a little more, I don't know if they're just not quite as bold as John. John just calls him out. But probably there were others who had same ideas or closer, some of the close feelings. But John tells us that Judas spoke up clearly and said, what are you doing? You're wasting this, and you could have sold it and used it for some good. It's amazing, secondly, not only is the proof there, but it's amazing that sometimes even those who are friends, even those who profess to be Christ's friends, can come at things with such an unkindness and a discouragement to other believers. Because they want to do something one way and they think it ought to be done another way. And they just are unkind and discouraging. That's what Judas is here. What are you doing, Mary? Mary is worshiping. Mary is caught up in an extravagant, overflowing, giving worship, giving... I don't know where Mary got 300 denarii of nard. John doesn't tell us. Matthew and Mark don't tell us. It, it, it's kind of a mystery. I don't know if this is saying that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus came from a fairly wealthy family, and they had it themselves the resources to get this. One commentator says perhaps maybe she, it was an heirloom. It had been handed down through her family, that her family for generations had been saving this and, and adding to this and building on this, and it came down through the generations, and now it was hers, and it was hers to use however she wanted. And so she went and she gave that to Jesus as an offering, as an act of worship. I don't know where she got it. But there's one thing that was clear. She wanted it to be used for nothing other than worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. 
She wanted it to be used for nothing other than honoring him and saying, this is one whom I give complete allegiance. And it says she knelt down and, and she, she anointed his feet with it. And then she let her hair down and she wiped, her, wiped his feet with her hair. There, there's no indication in any of the acts of worship in the Old Testament that that's to be done. We, we, are, we do see that there's a washing of feet later on by Jesus on his disciples indicating a, a, a servanthood and a, a giving, a humility. And that's what, that's what Mary's doing here. She is humbling herself before Christ. She is humbling herself in worship. She is saying, I am your servant. I am lowly. I am not worthy to be in your presence, but I give you what I have, and I, and I let my hair down, and I wipe your feet with my hair. No respectable Jewish woman would have let her hair down in the presence of other men. But it seems like she has no inhibition here because her purpose is simply to honor Christ as extravagantly as she possibly could. There are a lot of people like Judas today, I think, who are discouraging toward gospel ministries. Oh, they proclaim to be followers of Christ. They say we're part of the, you know, we're part of the church, we're part of the body, we're, part of, we're disciples of Jesus, we've, we've made a profession of faith, we've done all these things. But when it comes time for giving to real gospel needs... I mean, really acts of worship, just giving extravagantly as an act of worship to God. They said, wait a minute, there, there, there are better ways to use this money. You know, I, I need to buy something else for myself. I know I could give this money to the Lord. I could give this money to this worship. I could give it to a, a place uh, of, of ministry or, or whatever. But, but you know, that, I've earned this money. It's really mine. Ma Mary was the owner of the perfume. Nobody made her give it. Nobody said, now, this is required of you. She gave it out of devotion. She gave it out of sacrifice. She gave it because she wanted to show her submission to him. There are myriads of people today who just say, wait a minute, that's just not a good expenditure of money. Now, they'll put it in the stock market. They'll, they'll buy new things for themselves. They'll certainly use it for their own pleasure. But when it comes down to a gospel, I remember in one church I pastored one time. I remember we were doing ministry and missions at another place. And, and, and every time we sent a team that went outside of the country, there was a small group, very small group, but a small group who said, why are we wasting money sending people over there? Why, we have needs here. That's what, G that's what Judas is saying. There are poor people here. Why don't we take care of them? And Jesus says, listen, leave her alone. So what Judas was accusing her of doing as being sinful, Jesus is saying, leave her alone. She's not sinful at all. She's doing what she needs to do that won't be available when I am buried I won't, there won't be able to be anointing of my body. It'll be very quick, down, wrapped up, placed in the tomb. She's merely preparing me for my burial. Now, they all still are struggling with that whole thing. But I want you to see that there are people, even among those who were in the house, 
Judas, the spokesman from John's perspective, but others, no doubt, who said, you know, I, I think we need to use this money for something else. Now, Judas piously said, let's give it to the poor. We can use this and we can help the poor. But John emphatically says, Judas didn't care a thing about the poor. But what he wanted to do was get that 300 denarii in the box so he could pilfer it. Build his own personal wealth. Build his own personal pleasure. I dare say that some of those who in my past have never heard anything like that at Grace Baptist Church, not even hinted at. But at my other church, I've got a feeling that some of those who were saying, why are we wasting that money doing that? We could use it here for ministry, had no intention of using it at that place for ministry. They just wanted to be able to keep their own money so they didn't have to give it to something that, that took it out of their pocket and put it into ministry. And that's what Judas is saying here, and that's what many people who sit in our church pews every Sunday, that's their attitude. Let's just keep it minimalist. Let's don't dream big dreams for ministry. Let's don't dream big dreams for outreach. Let's don't dream big dreams for, for evangelism and missions. Why? That will cost money. And if that costs money, you'll ask me for money. And I want to keep the money for myself. That's really Judas's attitude here. But Mary's worship was extravagant. We talked about that Wednesday night a little bit in our Bible study. We talked about worship, nine Nine things about worship that we need to remember. And one of them that our worship is to be outflowing and extravagant and over the top. So much so that some people will look at us and say, you know, I don't know about your zeal. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about your zeal for the gospel and zeal for worship and zeal for the Lord. We live in a day where zeal is kind of looked at like, oh man, that's, that's, a, little over, that's a little bit over the top. That's a little bit over the top, and we ought to be a little bit over the top for the Lord. I mean, let's face it. If it is true, what the gospel says is true, and if it is true that he has set us free from our sins and given us eternal life and made us a new creature, if it's true that just like Lazarus was in the grave, we were in the grave spiritually, and he said to us, come forth, and as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we who were dead in our trespasses and sins were made alive by God. If that is true, then we ought to be just like Lazarus. And I guarantee you, Lazarus is going around Bethany and around Jerusalem saying, look what Jesus did in my life. I got a feeling because people were believing, a lot of people said, you know, he's a little over the top with this. A little extravagant even in his testimony, much less Mary's worship. You know, worship is not coming and sitting here and hearing other people sing and kind of saying, well, I wonder what I can get out of it today. Worship is coming and giving. Worship is coming and giving of yourself. It, it, it begins in the innermost beings and it flows out the mouth. In, in praise and adoration and glorification of Jesus Christ. But worship is never a spectator sport. Two weeks from yesterday, spectator sports will begin in earnest. I won't get out there and play with them. I'll watch them. 
But worship is not football or basketball or baseball. Worship is something that we give ourselves to. And that's what Mary was doing. She was giving herself completely to worship the Lord, humbling herself, committing herself to Him in an absolute way, just like you and I are called to do. It's a third group of people here. Or those who had heard and, and they came and they wanted to see what was going on and, and some of them believed, some of them didn't, but they saw the evidence of the miracles. That was one group. There were others who were discouraging because of what they saw as being wasteful, which really wasn't. But then there's that third group that have a desperate hardness of heart and unbelief. And it's amazing how desperately hard of heart many people can be. And you know, the latter part of that, 9 through 11, that's exactly what it's talking about. There's, a, there's an unbelief in the chief priests. They consulted together. Let's put Lazarus to death too. Let's kill Jesus. Let's kill Lazarus. They could not deny the fact that he'd been raised from the dead. But they could not bear the fact that he'd been raised from the dead. They saw him. They knew the miracle was real. They wanted him dead again, just like they wanted Jesus dead. And then there's that hardness in, in Judas's heart. I mean, I mean, understand, Judas, after being chosen to be an apostle, after walking for three years with Jesus, after, in, in essence, being a preacher of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, he turns out to be a thief and a traitor. Now, Jesus knew that from the beginning, understand that. Didn't catch him by surprise. There's a hardness that can take place even around the glory of Christ. There's a hardness that can take place in your heart even around the glory of worship. If it's not a part of your life. If it's not a part of your being. If it's not a part of your lifting your heart, your voice and saying, you know... Father, I submit to you, and I want to be extravagant in my worship. I want to be extravagant in my giving. I want to be extravagant in, in, in just thanking you for all that you have done for me and bringing me out of the tomb, out of the spiritual tomb, into spiritual life. They were hard. They were hard, and they un, their, their unbelief was, from a human standpoint, their unbelief was ridiculous. From all that they had seen. But you see, his work was not done in their life. And he was about to work in the disciples' lives to send them back to those same people whom later many would believe as the Holy Spirit worked in their life. Many would believe after they see one more sign, not included in John 7, but a sign nonetheless, when after three days, the sign of Jonah, who was in the bell, belly of the well for three days, Jesus was in the belly of the earth for three days, dead as much as Lazarus was. And he rose from the dead. Nobody came up and yelled into the tomb. It didn't take some other person to come and say, oh, I can do this, Jesus did it, I can do it, no. It was just by the power and the glory of Jesus Christ himself that he came forth out of the grave alive. Listen, if you're here this morning, thank God if you know anything of faith. 
thank God if, if he has worked in your heart and worked in your life with all of our weaknesses and all of our infirmities, if we can say, I believe, I trust, I believe that he is the Son of God, I believe he is my Savior, I have trusted him, thank God for that. Let us pray that that our faith will be real and true and genuine and sincere, not a mere temporary impression, not a mere uh, passing fad. And our faith will be real and genuine, and our worship will be extravagant and complete. That we, like Mary, will humble ourselves before the Lord. Psalm the choir sang out of Chronicles, you know, if my people, if my people, God's people, Christians now in our side of the cross, will humble themselves and pray. You know, you're you're better to give money to something that's taking the gospel to our country than to a political activity. Politics will fail you. The gospel never will. So I ask you this morning, are you like Mary? You just want to give everything you've got to to worship and adore and, and fall before him and extravagantly worship him out of the heart? From your innermost being, or are you like Judas? Well, you use this something better. I can keep some of it for myself. Give a little bit. I mean, why, why is everything required? In about six weeks, maybe ten, you're going to see why everything is required. Because everything was given. Everything in his life was given that we might have life. Think on that. Dwell on that. Pray on that. Let's pray together. Father, we're going to sing in a moment a hymn to you that says we're more like Mary than we are like Judas or the others in that room. We're going to sing a hymn of commitment that says, I surrender all. I declare you to be Lord of all. Because if you're not Lord of all, you're not Lord at all. We're going to sing a hymn, Lord, that is a prayer, really. And Father, we can sing it with our voices. Maybe even sing it well with our voices. Lord, unless you engage with us and we sing it with our hearts, it's just empty words. Father, I pray for men and women who are here today that don't know Jesus. I pray that your Holy Spirit will move in their life. 
show them the Savior. Show them their need for the Savior. Father, we love them. And we want them to know you. And we want to help them to grow in you. Father, we ask you to work in their life. Are there others here who have just been content with stingy worship? Convenient worship. Help them make their worship extravagant. Lord, you do your work in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.